there are tragedies in most people's lives. And sometimes those tragedies can end someone's life. And that's what happened with Marilyn Monroe. But I think that with, with women, especially women who die before their time, they don't live to be old. There's this tendency, this, this very vulgar sort of tendency to focus on the end and to sensationalize the end. And there's a lot of voyeurism and, and things like that. And so that's off and almost like the more, the, the higher, you know, the higher the climb, the bigger the fall, you know, that sort of thing. It's almost like a sick delight that I think people still take in, in, in seeing these certain kinds of tragedies happen to women, particularly when they can sort of blame, oh, it's her fault that she did this, or look, she was such a mess, or she was too messy, this is why this happened. And so I, that's another reason why I really wanted to focus on this, this, um, year that she had in New York. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. I am so excited to be joined with Elizabeth Winder, who not only is the author of Marilyn in Manhattan, her year of joy from 2017, which we're going to deep dive with her, but she also is the author of Pain Party's work, Sylvia Plath in New York, summer 1953, her work has appeared in the Chicago Review, the Antioch Review, American Letters and Commentary, and she graduated from College of William and Mary and earned an MFA in creative writing from George Mason University. So first, welcome Elizabeth to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Hello. <laughs> and um, I'm also joined with my co-host, Mary. So hi, Mary. It's nice for you to be here. Hello. Um, so I think right away, Mary and I were talking about, um, in preparation for your appearance here, Elizabeth, that, you know, Mary is a fictional writer. I am an academic, mostly I write poetry sometimes, but mostly a scholarly writer. And we were just saying how a biographer kind of has to embrace both of those molds, like has to blend those genres together. So, yes. I mean... Yeah, Mary, I'll let you ask <laughs> the award-winning question. Well, yeah, I mean, what is, I mean, I'm sure every autobiographer and nonfiction writer has their own process, but what is your specific process when you are starting a new biography? Wow, okay, so my process might sound a little chaotic um, to a lot of people. I, maybe, maybe to, especially to other biographers, um, because, you know, I never, I actually went to graduate school for poetry and I, so for a very long time, I wasn't even used to writing incomplete sentences. You know, I was, I'm very um, image driven in terms of like visual, I'm a visual sort of writer. So usually what happens is I start from looking at a lot of pictures a lot of photographs, a lot of images. And luckily we live in this age of the internet so that it's just, everything is just a click away. Um, and that's how I started this one. That's actually how I even 
the idea of this book, Marilyn in Manhattan was born, I had, would have never thought to write about Marilyn Monroe had I not seen certain pictures of her that kind of struck my imagination. So my process always starts with um, like visual evidence, you know? <laughs> yeah. And what is your pre uh, research process like? The research process? Let me think um, back to how I did the Marilyn book. Um, again, this may sound crazy, but I start. I started with pictures. I um, printed out like maybe 2000 photographs of Marilyn Monroe that I found online that were from the specific timeline that I cover, which starts at the end of 1954 through the beginning of 1956. And I would do um, things like I would, I would print out 30 pictures of the same party that she went to and kind of piece it together to see like what exactly happened during this, this party. Cause when you're, you're writing a microbiography, you want, I want to be able to really put the reader there in the way that like you're, you're present when you watch a movie or something, you know, like you see you, you're there while things actually happen. You're almost seeing it in real time. And so I wanted to write this biography that way. So then I put all the pictures in like in, in an order in the, these two big notebooks. And then I sort of, I did, then I did my research around it. And I like to handwrite everything first. <laughs> so I was handwriting notes and beginnings of sentences kind of like all in this chronological order that was sort of guided by these images because I'm somebody who just like needs, I need images to anchor me. Um, so that's, that was my beginning. And Marilyn Monroe is, is some, obviously someone where it's not, it's not hard to find information about her. And then um, another really, really big important part of the research for this book was um, later on in the process, I went to um, the special archives of gosh, it's, it's been, it, I feel like it's been so long because I've worked on things since then, but there, so, archives of the, of the, um, this library, a research library at the, in, in Austin. And, um, I looked at specifically at the Norman Mailer archives because he had hours and hours of audio recording interviews with Marilyn's friend and colleague, Milton Green and his wife, Amy Green. So I was in a room listening to those and writing a lot of, um, you know, direct quotes down and things like that. So that was another really big part of it. Yeah. Was, the it, the, part. was it at the Harry Ransom Center? That's it. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. That's um, it. <laughs> yeah. So an image that we're greeted with right away, of course, is Marilyn leaning over in Manhattan, um, looking out at the skyscrapers. I'm just curious, when did you encounter what became the cover and such a powerful image of what's to come with Marilyn's energy in Manhattan. I think I, I encountered this, this image before I started writing the book officially. And even before I think I wrote the first sentence of the book, I knew that I wanted this to be the cover. Um, and this, this picture was taken in the spring of 1955 after she had settled in New York for a couple of months. And I just think that that image says everything on, on so many levels, because one, you have, a, you have Marilyn Monroe, not in a 
pinup outfit, not in some mm. Hollywood awards show evening gown, not with a lot of makeup on. She's in a bathrobe on a hotel ba balcony, looking out into Manhattan amongst all the skyscrapers. This is a very different image of her than I think a lot of people are used to. And then I think that this image is just, it It really, it, it, it's, it has so much hope in it. And I look at it and I see immediately like a woman who feels empowered and capable of reinventing herself and kind of like breaking free in a way. So that's, um, I really, I really, that image was kind of in my mind the whole time as I was writing this book. Yeah. Do you know what hotel she was at when she was, this photo was taken? When this photo was taken, it was, um, the, this photo shoot was at the Ambassador Hotel. It was not the hotel that she was staying. She had a few different places of residence that year in New York. Um, uh, and this one, the Ambassador was just used for this photo shoot. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So you mentioned right at the beginning of your biography, I was so captivated um, by the preface of just what her life was, how it almost in a way, this crumbling in Hollywood and the pressure she felt and almost just being passed around the 20th century Fox studio industry. Yes. And like, you know, you really do make this claim that I completely agree with that Manhattan becomes for her this lifeline to find her authenticity away from that yes. pressure and that publicity and her image on the, you know, movie screen. So like maybe how did you find trying to separate these different identities Marilyn Monroe was living, like from the Hollywood element into then her more organic nature of when she eventually starts at the actor's studio? Okay, um, I, I really believe, and I, I still believe this, that Marilyn Monroe would have died, she died very young, but I think that she would have died even younger had she stayed in Hollywood and not made that move to Manhattan. I think that, you know, and that you mentioned in the beginning of my book, you know, the, the preface, and I'm so, I'm so glad that you liked it because um, I didn't know if that was a good way to start. So I'm glad that you liked it. I, you know, you really get the sense. I was trying to create this very immediate sense that she was kind of sneaking away and escaping. Mm -hmm. And she was running, she was running away from her life. And, and people do that sometimes. You know, and um, I think that in this case, it would have been impossible for her to, to not only to grow as a person, but to even survive had she stayed in Los Angeles. You might, you, people could even argue that she was in a trap of her own making in a way, because she was, she did in the beginning of her career, you know, really lean into that bombshell look but at the same time, you have to realize that was the only option for women. And at that, at that time, women in Hollywood. And I imagine that there, there were many, many other Hollywood actors who felt maybe to a lesser degree, but in a similar way that Marilyn felt, who felt trapped, especially women actors, because they, 
the studio system was they the studios rolled supreme at that time and they really owned the actors i mean completely so i was really trying to communicate just how that 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 really constricting sense of feeling trapped you know because i think that all of us have felt that at some point in our lives and you know then it when it when it goes on you just kind of get that feeling in your chest like i can't break free i can't move and that's how marilyn felt by by 1954 you know she was pretty much at the peak of her career all the you would think all these wonderful things had happened but that's absolutely how she felt in hollywood does that really, answer yeah bit? yeah of course yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and i really like that your novel really presses upon that the idea that the studios owned you as an actor and you were going to play the parts that they gave you because I, before I read this I was thinking like you know you had Greta Garbo you had the Hepburns and like these women who these actors who were considered to be more serious actors yeah and then you had Marilyn Monroe who was always playing this bomb this blonde bimbo and you're like why was she never given the chance to play anything more serious and it is like you said, because the studios decided what you were going to play and therefore they decided if you were going to be a serious actor <laughs> or if you right. were going to play these types of parts. Right. And I think that so much of that, I mean, they decided for you and they decided right away. And once they decided that was it, you had a label on you, you had to, you know, maybe you did comedy plus bombshell roles or you were more serious and so much of that what was determined by how you looked mm. you know um Marilyn, it was really it was so surface level because when you look at someone like Marilyn Monroe it was it was based on you know the, the fact that she had that traditional heterosexual sex appeal maybe you, you know like the her her body whether it was her body proportions her voice her face you know, she was just labeled very, very quickly as not serious. And at first, you know, that she was just excited to act, you know, because that when you get into your dream career, you're just excited to be doing anything at mm -hmm. first. Mm -hmm. And then I think after a while, she realized, no, I want more. And then on top of that, it wasn't just being restricted to these roles that she was getting really, really sick of. It was also not being treated as a human being every, in, in a way. I mean, when I mentioned in the book, you know, this, the studio system, like you had to, it didn't matter how big of a star you, you were on set, you had to ask to go to the bathroom. You had to ask, you had, you asked permission to go on a date with somebody <laughs> like during your personal time. And it, you know, it was, it was that, it was almost like indentured servitude. It was, it was really, really, restrictive yeah well and <laughs> someone else who you mentioned in your book um is judy garland and like judy garland had so much come out um from scholarship and biographers about when she was in wizard of oz like she could only eat a certain kind of yes. food and you talk about marilyn monroe like it'll stick out to me like this concoction of the remind me it's like yeah, egg, egg, yolks, egg yolks, a little bit of liver. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> and she could only have tomato juice, or it was this whole kind of juicing right. diet. And right, but Juice then there's with raw protein and stuff. Yeah, yeah, but <laughs> then there's also 
like the connection between Marilyn and Judy is that they got involved with the studio making them start to take pills to sleep. Yes. And the barber traits that, you know, really, you know, created an addiction that wasn't known about how harmful this was to them. Right, right. I mean, I, I'm glad you brought that up because I also see so many similarities between Marilyn Monroe and Judy Garland. Of course, they are different women, but, you know, there's that vulnerability there. And then you're right about the pharmaceuticals and that the studio system was, was pushing on all their actors very liberally because, um, you know, for example, in Maryland, like many, many people struggled with insomnia. And then you have these early call times. So mm-hmm. an easy solution, you know, the, the studio, the directors, they didn't want her showing up to work, you know, the circles under her eyes, just give her a pill, you know? And um, also what might not be very well known is that Marilyn Monroe struggled with endometriosis. Um, and even today, many women with endometriosis, they it's, it's so underdiagnosed that, you know, at the time she didn't even really know that she had it. So the studio system was then pushing more painkillers on her. And also to be fair, the, the danger of those drugs was not really known at that time. Yeah. Yeah. And I do want to say, like, I know Mary said your book is a novel and this isn't to like critique Mary in the moment, but I know, but as I think soon as I said that, I was no, like, oh, no, but I think it's actually a really important, powerful moment of slippage because it's exactly why I'm gravitating. And, you know, your biography, your book, Elizabeth is so stunningly the prose. It's one of, you know, and I'm not just saying this cause you're here, but it's just <laughs> such this page turner of, you know, capturing the dialogue, really telling the story that moves, that doesn't feel like you're just engaging in controversy or conspiracy. And I know that's really with Marilyn. So like, can you talk about that? Like, what did you think of all the conspiracies that exist about Marilyn's life? Like, well, first, thank you so much for saying those things about my book. And Mary, I'm actually so uh, flattered that you called it a novel because that's exactly what I wanted to read like you know I mean mm-hmm. I think that that um, prose should be as engaging as poetry and I also think that nonfiction should be as engaging as fiction mm-hmm. um, so a lot of the way I taught myself to write nonfiction was by really kind of studying fiction that I liked in terms of like how it you know how it was structured and, and all of those wonderful things um, wait then I forgot your question. No, no, no. I was just going to ask, like, how did you, you know, because I was, don't want us to go to what immediately is thought of with Marilyn, right. which is the death. Like, so, right. Yes. And your book counters that with her time in Manhattan. So to start with that, like, what did you find was maybe the most difficult or what was challenging to kind of counter that history when you're looking at her period in Manhattan? Well, you know, like, I mean, what you had mentioned earlier about like, you know, Marilyn being sort of surrounded by controversy, conspiracy theories. I mean, that's absolutely true because I feel like more than half the people that I encountered, oh, you're writing a book about Marilyn Monroe. Is this about JFK? You know, like that's, Mm -hmm. and I was just thinking, what? (laughs) But so many, and then it dawned on me, oh my God, this is what, 
I'm up against or any, any person writing about Marilyn who wants to show this other side of her is up against. Um, and I thought, and that gave me even more motivation to really focus on this time period because I was, I was trying, I really wanted to, this was such a special year in her life. And I feel like it was the, one of the only times that she really felt free to be herself and to pursue the goals and the interests and the friendships and the relationships that she wanted to pursue. So not only did, just as a writer, I feel like bringing, it's, it's so important to me to bring all kinds of details into relief, to high relief, to make things more immediate. I thought the stronger that I could make those details, the more it would resonate with people and it would bring this, this Marilyn to life. What I see is the real Marilyn to sort of counter these other static images that we have of her that have been kind of thrown at us for over half a century. Does that make yeah. any sense? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because she's definitely seen, at least, from my experience she's definitely seen as almost like this very tragic character in her own story which is like you know weird to me but you know because you, you hear about her early days and her how she was abused yeah. in an orphanage and then she becomes this starlet and people kind of think like oh like you became a starlet so like that's it why did why were you depressed why were you going through right. all of these different issues you got what you wanted but to step back and say, wait a minute, she's not just this character she's played over and over and over for you again on the screen. There's an actual person there. Right. Who, tragedy aside, is a human being that is very worth exploring, which you did yeah. so beautifully. And oh, I love seeing this version of Marilyn instead of her I'm being so, so glad. Thank you. I think that with um, women in... I think that our society has this tendency to focus, there are tragedies in most people's lives. And sometimes those tragedies can end someone's life. And that's what happened with Marilyn Monroe. But I think that with, with women, especially women who die before their time, they don't live to be old. There's this tendency, this, this very vulgar sort of tendency to focus on the end and to sensationalize the end. And there's a lot of voyeurism and, and things like that. And so that's off and almost like the more, the, the higher, you know, the higher the climb, the bigger the fall, you, that sort of thing. It's almost like a sick delight that I think people still take in, in, in seeing these certain kinds of tragedies happen to women, particularly when they can sort of blame, oh, it's her fault that she did this, or look, she was such a mess, or she was too messy. This is why this happened. And so I, that's another reason why I really wanted to focus on this, this um, year that she had in New York. And it's not that, and obviously in the book, you know, I, I, you'll find that it's not that Marilyn Monroe, I'm trying to, to come up with this, build this counter argument that, that she never drank too much or she never abused pills or she never had messy relationships. Of course she did all those things. So many people do all these things. So many men do all these things too. And nobody seems to say anything mm. about that by the way and yet she was still a completely dynamic fully rounded human being who was really pursuing like serious goals here and taking big risks 
Yeah. Well, and I think that that's such an important element because like even throughout your book, you do as a biographer, right? You still make mention of what happens before. Like I will always remember your description of her like driving to LAX and she's kind of has maybe a shawl or she's has like a wig on and she's trying yeah, to she really escape the public eye. And then eventually yeah. when she lands in Manhattan, she kind of lets go of that. And, you know, like you said, the cover of your book, she does not have caked on makeup and like has more of that Milton Green, the photographer, yes. that yes. idea that he really got to know about her. And, you know, I really appreciate how much you speak to Milton Green and that friendship. And um, oh my gosh, thank you. Yeah. So, like, how did you know what was your research like to really get to the bottom of her connection to Milton? Well, that was her, Marilyn's friendship with Milton Green is such a big part of this book, obviously. And it, it's so, their friendship is so endlessly touching and fascinating to me because the more I read about it, and, the, and especially in my research when I was in the Norman Mailer archives at the Harry Ransom Center, I was so, I, I, was, I was just so captivated by, by their friendship because it was so special. And it was, it was really a friendship between two very imaginative, vulnerable people who were both artists, who were both kind of, you know, shy and skittish around people, but who really trusted each other. And they had this wonderful, like, like playful dynamic. And when you see, I love the, the pictures of them together. When you see them working together, like working on Marilyn Monroe productions, when you see them in a little office with phones and notebooks surrounded by pictures, being busy together. It's just yeah. like, I look at that and I know what that feeling is like. You know, when you when you meet somebody who you can collaborate with, who shares your vision, who you can, who you just feel seen by, it's such a special thing. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to focus on it. And it made me upset that the general scholarship surrounding Marilyn Monroe focuses so much on her relationships with these other men that maybe through no fault of their own, maybe not, really kind of dulled down her creativity and her capacity to like um, advocate for herself and create and do all of those things that she wanted to do. Whereas like Mil Milton Green just, it was like a wonderful spark between them. Yeah, yeah. Well, I also love oh, the relationship. Wait. Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, just to follow up because I do, what you've just said, Elizabeth, is a stereotype like I had to break like not break, but I've had to confront when I've talked about my real love for Marilyn Monroe's literary fascination. And I'm so glad you mentioned all of the books that she was reading because I even had a professor of mine who said, oh, that's a picture of her with Ulysses. That was probably a PR stunt. And I'm like, oh my God. no, no, no. And I work on Whitman. So I know she had Leaves of Grass on her bedside yes, table. Yes, that was and one of her favorite yeah. Book. And there was a whole yeah. catalog list from her auction when the books, I'm sure yes. you've seen it, but yes, of yeah. her annotations. And yeah, I'm so right. glad, you know, we can get more into it, but I'm so glad you counter the 
um, oh, knowledge that she was not a literary person because she was. Isn't it crazy that people just assume, oh, that was staged? What, what do you, yeah. what, why would you even think that? You know, it's, it's incredible to me how people still have these very antiquated, regressive thoughts about conclude the conclusions about her personality in this day and age yeah. but they do <laughs> yeah and it's sad to see that someone who who it who was a sex symbol it's like you can only be good at that kind of going right. back to what we we're talking about with the studio it's like okay you can only be good at that thing like right. what you trying to be the hot chick and the smart girl like sorry you can only have right. it doesn't one. work that way <laughs> yeah <laughs> and it's like no because that's not how people are we're not just absolutely one and it's it's almost like like society these days that they're still trying to do to Marilyn Monroe what the studio system did to her mm. you know mm -hmm. you've got to pick like we've already picked this one for you you don't get to do the rest if you if, if you're caught doing it you're just like a little kid pretending to read a serious book or there's this it's, it's a very infantilizing kind of attitude yeah mm -hmm. well and Unfortunately, someone who we're seeing with being treated, in my opinion, um, like that right now is Wendy Williams. And I have always admired Wendy Williams as a radio host, a, you know, TV host. Like she knows what she's doing in pop culture. But yes, she's having mental health and a mixture of a dependency on some substance but what saddens me is the, is she going to come back or is she done? And right. I'm like, why don't you let her live her, like try to figure her life out and absolutely like have the door open for her when she, hopefully she does come back. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, because in today, like, like you think like, well, on one level, society's come so far, there are things, great things being done, you know, breaking down the stigma for mental health issues. Um, substance abuse, all different kinds of things. But then at the, at the end, you see people forget all that and they're turning someone's struggles into kind of a spectator, the media into kind of a spectator sport, commenting on it. It's almost like betting on a horse. Is this going to happen? Is this not going to happen? And, you know, it's, it's very sad and it's dehumanizing. And it always seems to happen to women seem to be the victim of that sort of speculation a lot more than men do, mm -hmm. I think. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think we've seen things happen recently with men who have acted violently in Hollywood and yes. it's a different narrative that's spun. Mm -hmm. So yes. you know, they can come back easier from mistakes that are- Oh, right. We've, you know, seen, we've seen it happen a lot in the past few years. We're seeing it happen now, I think. You know, it's it keeps happening. <laughs> yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Oh, but like- yeah. Even with Marilyn and her connection to Manhattan, I mean, I, you again, remind me, you reminded me of that image that so many know that of her and the subway gray and like that's in Manhattan, but that's for the seven year itch. And it's kind of more of that PR image. Right. Um, like, so what did you think about, I know you can't get into the psychology of like, you're not in Marilyn's head, but you must have definitely thought through what was it like in those moments you think for Marilyn to have to perform in that way while also having her complexity of her mind? I think that my opinion is that Marilyn, that whole night of the seven year itch, that whole night during the premiere 
and I, like I said, I look at, I look at photographs very, very closely. I think that she was very miserable that night. Okay. Hold on to that question because we'll be right back. But first a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Welcome to the Snapple Market Auditory Experience. Close your eyes. Imagine you're walking into your neighborhood store. You make your way to the back and reach for your favorite Snapple flavor. You can't wait. You take a sip. Whoa, that's a lot of flavor. Mmm. What flavor are you holding? Now open your eyes and check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavorful Snapple near you. Because if you look at pictures of her during the seven year itch premiere, um, she has the heavy makeup on again. She has those heavy, heavy diamond jewelry. She didn't even really like wearing jewelry that much. She was somebody who really liked wearing just very simple clothes that she could move around in. And she looked very, very sad. You know, she was on the arm of her ex-husband. This, this, I think this just felt like a giant step back to her. And, you know, she had already filmed the movie and everything, and, but this is not what she wanted to be known for. You know, even though her performance in that film was, was great, you know, and I think, and I, and absolutely something that she should have been proud of. And I hope that she was proud of it, but she was still, that was the middle of the year of 1955. It was June. I think it was on her 29th birthday that, that the premiere was, and she's felt, you know, this life, obviously life isn't linear. You know, you can be making progress, but then all, all of a sudden some things will happen and you're thinking, am I right back to where I started? And I think that's how she felt that moment during that publicity shoot, during the premiere and with all of that wrapped up together. She was also getting a lot of pressure from Hollywood to say, you know, Marilyn, stay in these roles. Stay, you do comedy and you do the bimbo stuff really, really well. Don't get in over your head, come back to Hollywood. So that, I, that was not a, a fun experience for her, I think. And then to have to see the massive billboard of her like you know in right in the middle of Manhattan to have to pass it all the time it's kind of like I imagine that she was thinking I my image my physical body is is it's still not my own it's still owned by these Hollywood men mm. so that's that's what I think was going on possibly yeah mm-hmm. yeah I also really like how you brought or this this period and why it's discussed and I also like the idea or not the idea but I like that it's mentioned that her and Milton were working on Marilyn Monroe productions because I feel like not only was she leaving LA and trying to leave Hollywood behind she was also not only trying to find herself but then trying to forge like you said her own image and I feel like her trying to create Marilyn Monroe productions was her trying to be like this is like, this is my body and it needs to be mine. And my image and my life and how I'm presented needs to be controlled by me and not by old dudes halfway across the country telling Absolutely. <laughs> and I love that. Cause again, you see her as like, sometimes I feel like she's presented as almost helpless and here she's yeah. like, yeah, I'm starting my own production company. What up? Like, you know, like very much like, yes. yes. Yeah, that was like, that was a very bold move on her part because 
she was getting so many, she was getting threatening calls from lawyers, multiple, she and Milton were every single day. Where's Marilyn? She has to come back. She broke her contract. We're going to bury her. She's, you know, we're going to make her a joke, all of these things. And, you know, you're absolutely right. Marilyn is seen as this helpless, Mm -hmm. cuddly little victim, but how many, how many other women did that back then? How many other people did that back then? How many other actors had the guts to do that back then. And in one of the things that I love about Marilyn's friendship with Milton Green is it seems like like whenever they, even when they were doing something really serious, it was kind of like two kids playing a game. There was like an element of that to it. And that's just something I love so much. And, you know, to um, bring it back to the preface of my book, when I'm, you know, she's wearing a wig, she's wearing a coat, yeah, she was kind of, she did sort of have to sneak away, but they were sort of leaning into that and having, having a good time with it in a way. And I think that it's, it's, it's so cool that, you know, even with all this pressure on them, because they were both risking a lot. Milton was risking a lot as well. Um, they were, they managed to be lighthearted about it and have a good time doing it. And they're, they were both in, use their imaginations to kind of propel themselves during this really risky time. Yeah. Okay. Well, now this is probably going to be a tough question, but, um, you know, we are up for, you know, whatever happened in your process. Cause I'm just always curious when I listen to the interviews of Marilyn, um, from her close friends, um, or from other actors who were working with her, um, like Lauren Bacall, I know I've heard a lot talk about Marilyn. Um, you know, even uh, Jane Russell, her co-star in Gentlemen yes. Prefer yeah. Blondes. Um, so who do you think of her close friends really knew Marilyn? Like really knew about her intelligence, her understanding of herself, that she even knew she was playing this part for the capitalist system of Hollywood, like that. Milton Green absolutely would have been the one to know her the best. I'm absolutely think that no one on the planet knew Marilyn as well as Milton Green did. I don't think anyone even came close. Mm -hmm. I mean, I could be wrong about that, but you know, she was, Marilyn was not, she was kind of a, she was actually a, a sort of private person in a lot of ways she was shy and she was fearful. She was skittish around people. It did take time for her to open up. It's not that she was guarded really. She was just kind of frightened. So I think that, and I think that some of her other friends, you know, like the friends that you've mentioned and some others, they, they saw her intelligence, but they also really saw her vulnerability. So with a, with a lot of interviews, and I don't know if you've picked up on this too, but I've noticed a real sort of when people talk about Marilyn Monroe, the people who knew her, like friends from the actor's studio, things like that, they talk about her in a very protective way and in it with admiration, but also with that sense of protectiveness. Like this is like a soft and vulnerable, wounded sort of creature um, because she always kind of, with most people, like they, she sort of presented that way. Yeah. Yeah. Have you, I mean, it just came out on the eve of this recording, but have you seen the new Netflix, The Mystery of Marilyn Monroe, the 
I have um, not seen it okay. yet. Have you? I did see it. Yeah. I. Um, and what did you think? Well, I think that it gives more of an understanding of what you're saying about her close confidants. Um, especially there's a lot of um, discussion with the Kennedys, like a lot of yes. those. Yeah. I mean, but <laughs> at the same time, what I'm happy with is they still rely on um, a lot of Milton Green connections. Good. I really, yeah, there's a lot I of, I love it when they focus on that. There's yeah. So much there. Yeah. They focus a lot more on that than her um, ex-husband's. So okay. I was excited about that. Um, and when it comes to the Kennedys, it was more about her conflicted feelings of like, there's a quote about her feeling like a rack of meat or like that will stand out to me yes. from That's, that. That, that actually does sound interesting to me. You know, when I was researching this book, it was like, I, I call it like a microbiography, like the scope of it was relatively small. So I stayed within that scope. I did read a lot about her past because of course the past informs what I'm talking about. I did not, um, of course I know about, you know, but my knowledge of Marilyn post 1956 is not nearly as, um, you know, it's, it's not nearly as fast. So, um, you know, I've always thought what, I wonder what it is that makes people so fascinated about her connection with the Kennedys. And I don't even, and, and, and it is, it, it is interesting, but I can't really even think of why, I mean, why do you guys think that people um, are really interested in that or focused on that? I personally think it's just the age old sex cells. So it's like, was she sleeping mm -hmm. with both of them? Was she only sleeping with the president? Was she only sleeping with his brother? Like, what was that relationship? Because obviously, you know, it was very scandalous. You know, yeah. JFK was married, you know, I'm not sure what Robert was doing if he was married at the time, but I think he know. was. OK, yeah, I, was I say, think I he, was. he was, but yeah. yeah. So, you know, you've got this huge, not only is it a scandal between a single woman and a married man, but it's a single woman and two brothers mm -hmm. that and are married. One of them men. is the president of the United States. Exactly. Right? <laughs> yeah, I yeah. feel like I, I asked kind of an obvious question. Why is, why are people interested in this? No, well, that- I mean, I think also, that's definitely one part of it, I yeah. think. Right. I mean, when I got to that part of- Right. Is it Anthony Summers? Because I know you do quote from or you looked at his biography. Oh, from, yes, I read it and I thought it was very good. Yeah. 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 Because from 1982, right, when her case is reopened. Right. Yeah. He starts to get this. He he starts to look through all of the like interviews and he, well, he conducts the interviews. He like tries to contact everyone who was in Maryland's Rolodex. Right, right. Yeah. I actually kind of want to go back and look at that biography again, um, especially like, it, you know, in terms of like background for watching the new Netflix show on her, um, because, you know, that that stuff is kind of interesting. Um, it it makes it makes you think like because it kind of indicates was did someone probably thought that or some people probably thought that Marilyn was dangerous in in some kind of way. And there's the part of it, like maybe she knew some secrets or something like mm -hmm. that. But the way that I kind of like to see it is, you know, we were talking earlier about how even today, but especially back then, 
you know, the studio system and society in general likes to put women into boxes. I think that the very fact that she did go to New York, even though she came back um, and struck out on her own and was, and really proved to be much, so much more intelligent than anyone gave her credit for. I think that that in itself made her kind of dangerous. Mm-hmm. You know, the fact mm-hmm. that she was not, you know, once you got to know her, you, you realized that she was not easily put into like a label or a box or something like that. So, you, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think something that um, I've started to find out more, just maybe from this documentary, from, of course, your book too. She was so nuanced in politics. She was actually more progressive than the Kennedys by far. With oh, her absolutely. understanding yes. of, you know, you know, what we would now call the LGBTQ community with feminist yes. issues. She was very progressive. Um, and I think that, like you're saying, was a threat too, because she wasn't going to be silenced. And that's dangerous with a studio system that wants to box you in, kind of like what we've seen with Paris Hilton in a way that people are surprised that she really understood her influencing strategy. Right. And it's like, well, right. why do you think they get to where they do? Like there is, there's thought behind this. There's right, right. There's like active brain activity going on, you know? Yeah. And that, I think that sometimes people don't like, don't like that. They don't like to see that, mm-hmm. you know, it's um, so they, they don't want to see it. Yeah. I will say I felt dirty listening to the Kennedy episodes in the documentary, because I felt for Marilyn, like, like, was she tapped privately in her bedroom? And I'm like, this is just so scandalous and uncomfortable. And if she was, that's an invasion of her privacy. Why was this allowed? Like, those are the questions I have. Right. You mean, like, why, how, how was that allowed, you know, not in terms of like Netflix coming out with the tapes, but how no, no. was it allowed to happen? Yeah, how was it allowed to happen in right. the first place? Right. Mm-hmm. I agree, and that is that is really that's that's frightening to think about, you know, on on so many levels, especially because I think, you know, I I and at this point, not you, you can't say everybody, every American thinks that JFK was great or saint or something, but there still is there still remains that whole Camelot thing, you mm-hmm. know behind him and then and then when you like you know you just said you felt dirty it felt it felt it was upsetting to how how did this happen to her how was that allowed to happen it really shows like a dark underbelly of you know her life can unfortunately reveals the dark underbelly of hollywood and maybe the later part reveals the same thing about politics Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah but is it true that marilyn monroe productions was the first female owned production company or Mary Pickford was the first oh, okay okay to start her own production company okay. Marilyn was the second after her and of wow. course Mary Pickford was decades before Marilyn yeah but I mean what to me that's such a legacy of Marilyn Monroe and you know like now we look at Reese Witherspoon who has a really successful right. Hello Sunshine is her production mm-hmm. company yes and they've done great projects. I think. Yes, yes. And Reese Witherspoon has her book club and like yes. those get pitched for her production company. And I think 
right? Would we have Reese Witherspoon's kind of understanding? I'm curious, does she turn to Marilyn Monroe? I mean, there's so much legacy. I'd be very curious about yeah. that too. Yeah, yeah. because mm-hmm. she was, I mean, I think that she really, Marilyn was a trailblazer in so many ways, but I kind of think that she would have gone into directing possibly and producing. And mm-hmm. I, I have this sense that she would have been such a good director. I, it's just something I've kind of thought about. Mm. Yeah, I agree with that too, definitely. And it would be interesting you know, if you could just rewrite time and like, you know, have her live for right. another 10 years and just, you know, be like, okay, Marilyn, direct this. See what Go. she does. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Well, now I'm going to let you in on a contact we've interviewed, Jan Balakian, who's a good friend of mine, who's an Arthur Miller scholar. And she, Jan just came out with a new play. So we were interviewing her about that. But I've asked Jan a lot about the Arthur Miller, Marilyn Monroe connection because Jan got to interview Arthur Miller at the end of his life in Connecticut. Oh. In wow. his country home, you know, yes. where Marilyn Monroe would have gone to. And um, well, she said she didn't bring it up because she thought it was really a, you know, a, it was a topic Arthur Miller didn't like to talk about. Right. Which I can understand. Um, right. But there is something that strikes me about Arthur Miller, which and, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, Elizabeth, you're the biographer here, <laughs> but it seems like he kind of thought she was extremely naive and had like she had this knowledge, but he needed to cultivate it for her. And I've kind of always felt uncomfortable about this, like teacher I feel exactly relationship. The same way. Yeah, I feel exactly the same way about her relationship with him and how I think he might have seen her. You're right. It's I, I sort of imagine Arthur Miller did not think Marilyn Monroe was was stupid or unintelligent mm-hmm. at all. I, I think that's obvious. But it's almost as if he saw in her like he saw this like raw material kind of. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. To sort of like you said, cultivate that that needed that needed some like a someone to tend to it, to educate it, to mold it mm-hmm. almost. You know, even though she was, and she was younger than him, but she was in her late twenties. She was an adult, um, and she was already very, very well read by the time she met Arthur Miller. It's not as if she hadn't read at all, and he was introducing her to all these books and things like that. That, that wasn't the case. I mean, I'm sure, like any couple where they're both very literary, they probably introduced each other to different writers and things like that. So. Um, but I, for some reason, I just think he saw her as, like you said, naive and like a this tiny little bud of a flower that needed tending to instead of a fully formed woman who was already, even though she didn't have formal education, very well educated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And that's and- not a, I mean, that's kind of an uncomfortable dynamic in relationships. Mm-hmm. To, you know, I don't yeah. think it's a good one. Yeah. yeah. Almost like she's a blank canvas. And that's exactly. Yeah. Like, where is her agency? But I feel like any of her relationships, that's the question I've always asked is, where was her agency? Like, did they let Marilyn in, be in Marilyn? romantic relationships? In romantic. Do you, do you mm-hmm. mean? Yes, yes, yes. I, none of her official room. I don't think that Marilyn Monroe had any her. I think that. How do I say this? I and this is me relating to, I can't write about anyone that I don't relate to on some level because I feel like it just wouldn't work. But, and maybe this is me getting, inviting myself into Marilyn Monroe's brain, but 
I think that Marilyn found it very, very difficult to have her own agency in her romantic relationships with men. Um, I, I think that the types, sometimes the types of men that were grab, that gravitated to her were the types of men that liked to see her as a blank canvas or had some control issues or things like that. And I, and I think that also just in general, it was hard for her to have agency around men. But the exception is going back to Milton Green. This is my theory. And I know Milton Green was, he was engaged to Amy Green when he met Marilyn. And then by the time she came to New York, he was, he was married, you know, happily married. But I, I maintain that Milton was the love of Marilyn's life. And I think that they should have, that, that had they ended up together, because it was really Arthur Miller who, who made Marilyn choose. He, Arthur said it, in 1956, look, it's Milton or it's me. And that was such a pivotal, pivotal moment in her time. I think it was just like really heartbreaking. I think that Milton was the only man that, and she did have, there was a rom romantic frisson sort of there. I think that that was the man that she did feel like she was an equal to, that she had agency around. And he gave her that breathing room and, and saw her as a creative equal and loved the types of things that they, that she came up with. But that's just, that's just me. I, you know, that's just my theory. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I would agree with that. I mean, again, and this is from you, I, reading your novel and seeing this relationship, you know, because it wasn't just that, you know, it wasn't just surface physical and it wasn't just, oh, you're really smart. I'm really smart. Like, like you said, like she definitely felt like he wasn't equal to her, which at the time I'm sure no one was giving her. I mean, even Absolutely. briefly when you talk about her marriage to or her separation and sort of like continuance of like hanging out with Joe DiMaggio, like there was always that air of like, why does it feel like he's in charge? Mm -hmm. Yes, right. <laughs> <laughs> like you're not together. Why do I feel like you have this right. like chokehold on <laughs> her life? Like, please go. Right, exactly, exactly. I think, and I think that it was a similar dynamic in a different way. And even though, Joe DiMaggio and Arthur Miller, Miller were very, very different people. I think that that was a similar dynamic in some ways began to unfold in her relationship with Arthur, you know, and it's, and it's, it, it's, it's so different when you look at a relate relationship with Milton, it's just so different. Mm -hmm. I think that Milton Green came into Marilyn's life at a time where she was really losing faith in the world and even herself you know like she was at a point where she you know she knew what she was capable of but she just didn't think it could ha even happen so that was making her lose hope and then Milton Green came in and they they kind of gave each other hope and it was such a it was such a beautiful thing a beautiful relationship I feel like I could write another book on their relationship it's so endlessly fascinating to me yeah. I also loved her relationship with Amy mm -hmm. or Amy's relate or, you know, and vice versa. Yes. I also didn't realize she didn't because what I even like in the pictures that I've seen her where she's not in her pinup stuff, I'm like, oh, she looks cute. But at the time, I guess those clothes were unfashionable. So like in a way, it was a little jarring for me to be like, wait a minute. There was a time in Marilyn Monroe's life where she was not a fashion icon. Like I am very <laughs> confused here. Right, right, right. There was I mean, there was 
I think that if you look at Marilyn's life in terms of like collections of moments, you know, most of her, the, the, like the clothes that people think of her wearing, she didn't even own those clothes. You know, she would just borrow them because Marilyn wasn't interested in like, um, you know, red carpet fashion. That wasn't the type of thing that, or fashion in terms of what's trendy and what's not. She had certain things that she absolutely loved, you know, like, like she loves simple things like black leotards and she loved her perfume and a few things like that. But, you know, the, the world of fashion didn't really interest her at all, basically. She sort of needed to be helped in that way. And that's what Amy Green was help, helping Marilyn with when she first came to Connecticut. You know, she took her shopping and Amy knew so much more about fashion than, than Marilyn did. Yeah. Yeah, well, and I think it's so interesting because um, like everything you've been talking about, Elizabeth, is really this machine of Hollywood that um, like, and I think that's how Hollywood still is in a way, is like the people who are part of this system, who are the, you know, faces the actors yeah. don't always agree with what they're doing. Like don't always wear those things like, but they become someone to look up to for the general public. And right. like, and that's a really tough negotiation when you want to try to have control over your identity. And, you know, you kind of have to fit these boxes of how you sell in a film or, you know. Oh, absolutely. It's yeah. right. It's like this, like a, it's still, seems to have this formulaic thing like this is what we're going to fit you into this is the this is like the little twist or the bait or the thing that makes you zeitgeisty right now and this is what you're going to wear to go along with it and these are the roles that you're going to take to go along with it even if a, there's not a studio mogul some old man breathing down your neck telling you do this or else you're going to be squashed there's the pressure to do that because you're you know that that the idea that you won't be successful unless you do that, that your projects won't be successful unless you conform to certain, you've got options to conform into, but you've got to pick one of those options, like that sort of thing. And I think that that still is very, very real in, in Hollywood, maybe perhaps now more than in, in a long time. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I kind of wonder what Marilyn would think of how she's been imagined especially in the Smash series that like, there's going to be a musical of her, like they're gonna expand that musical for Broadway soon. So like, I'm curious about what your thought is of how, cause right, that's where the theatrical and Hollywood are meeting in a way, like literally Maryland's New York City and Maryland's LA are in that musical. So- I actually yeah. haven't seen that. So what, what, do, what do you, have you guys seen it? You, um, what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, well, I really liked when they imagined the Marilyn Monroe musical, just because there are numbers of like her conflicted feelings about the Hollywood industry. And there's like this whole song about like 20th Century Fox and she's just like passed from one man to another, like oh, about wow. okay. what yeah. to do, how to act. And then you kind of, there is a whole number about the actor's studio and Stanislavski and the method. And like, That's I imagine great. Marilyn Moore. Yeah, no, I think it's actually pretty nuanced. The only thing is there it is no like something Green. Marilyn would be happy about if it was yeah. happening because, you know, I, I think that 
she would want that story to be told, you know, that how she felt during those during those years in Hollywood. I mean, I imagine that everybody wants to be heard and she wanted to be heard too. Yeah. The only thing is I hope they add Milton Green just because oh my they God. rely a lot yeah. on DiMaggio and mostly right. DiMaggio. And um, yeah, there's not a lot of Arthur Miller, but I'm sure they will. Cause like the way they did it in the TV series, it was only like a 40 minute musical. So <laughs> Oh yeah, you know, but they should they should consult you, Elizabeth. As oh my gosh, you know the biographer. <laughs> well, I'd be happy. I'd be happy to be consulted about it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, so like, what? Maybe like as we're wrapping up, what did you learn personally that you were surprised about while you were going writing and pouring over the material to? document this time in Marilyn's life? What do you think? Um, you know, nothing really could surprise me about Marilyn Monroe. Um, so I don't really know if, if I was, there were, there was, maybe I was, maybe I was surprised on some way, although, although I shouldn't have been surprised, these moments of, there, there was so much about her that's just so, so, so relatable, I, I think. Like, for example, in my book, um, in, this is, happens in March of 1955, where she's doing this circus thing and she's trying to get on the elephant and during the costume fitting, she felt fat during the costume fitting, nothing was working. They were trying to put her in costumes that she didn't want. She had so many moments like that where she just felt like, oh gosh, you know, there were the, you know, when you plan for something and you're thinking, and you're thinking, I'm going to make sure everything goes well. I'm going to be, I'm going to make sure my hair looks great. I'm going to make sure that I'm well rested. I know what I'm doing. And then somehow it's just like, you get there and you're like, you're sweating and it all falls apart. There were so many moments like that in Marilyn's experience, you know, experience that I thought like, wow, this is so, you know, this is how I feel all the time or things like that. And, you know, another thing that surprised me, but it, this is in a more, sad way was it was to find out that Arthur Miller was the reason why her friendship and partnership with Milton Green ended that was it was surprising to me that he would be so hostile towards Milton Green and I don't think he was that hostile in the beginning but it escalated and it was surprising that he would ask a woman who he loved and who he supposedly was supporting with her cre own creative projects and who he wanted to support in the way you're supposed to support a, a partner to, to grow would ask her to demand that she cut off contact with her best friend and creative collaborator and end a you know and cut him off from the Marilyn Monroe Productions which was such a I think it was the beginning and the, of the end for her in a lot of ways. So that was a, that was something that, you know, really struck me in, in my research. And it was very difficult for me to write about personally because it made me so sad. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Mary and I had a Marilyn Monroe episode in Atlantic city. Cause I actually <laughs> really love the Claridge hotel where she stayed when she was, in charge of the Miss America pageant, like um, leading Miss America, um, 
they're in that parade. And like those images, I see this light in Marilyn's eyes, like this happiness of like, just, you can tell, you can really tell, like even the image on your cover of her leaning over the hotel of just excitement and euphoria of being content but you're right yes. it's when it that's such yeah. a great image yeah. such a great feeling because we all know that feeling right and it's kind of the best feeling in the world when those moments happen yeah but mm-hmm. it really is in my opinion when they're trying you can really tell when she's trying to be fit into the stereotype and it's yeah it's it's a it's heartbreaking but I think you really show us this lesson of living your authentic self, but like not trying to not let people define your narrative, but it can be very yes. tough, you know, mm-hmm. of a balance. It really, can, it really can be. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wait, yeah. you were talking about your Maryland moment in the, at the hotel. Oh, oh yes, yes, yes. yes. So, um, <laughs> I mean, Mary, <laughs> Mary can explain, like, right, Mary, what did you see at the hotel? Well, I mean, it was, first of all, it was like a ghost town, but I mean, we were still yeah. kind of, well, we're coming out of the pandemic. So I guess like, you know, that's just how it was, but like, it almost felt like a ghost town. Cause there was like this one little old man in a wheelchair, like yelling. And I was like, wait a minute, is he real? Is, or is he a ghost? Like what is <laughs> happening? <laughs> but the one area has all of these pictures of her with the Miss America pageant mm-hmm. and things like that. And like, and just the architecture I'm, I'm assuming is still the same from back then. It's just absolutely gorgeous. And to just know that she was there was like, <sighs> yeah. Cause she stayed oh in gosh, the penthouse. Yeah, you should. Cause at the rooftop bar, they, the staff pointed me to the penthouse, which is on the rooftop of the bar outside. And that's also where Frank Sinatra stayed, but like thinking of Marilyn oh, Monroe there, like just such history. And um, yeah, I think there's so much you teach us in your book that are lessons of seeing people as agentic, empowered people who have an identity that, you know, you can't craft them into the image you have of them. And for me, unfortunately, yes. that's what happened with Marilyn is a lot of men were trying to craft her into their fantasy of, which was her power on the screen was the fantasy of her femininity, but that wasn't, she wasn't the fantasy in real life. Right, Mm -hmm. right. I think that's why it was very difficult for her to reconcile in in her life, you know, because that, that false image of her was what, what was sort of like galvanized her career. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I think thank you so much for saying that about my, my book. That was one of the best compliments I could have. So thank you. No, your book is so wonderful. So, you know, are you working on something we should all, you know, be ready for, Elizabeth? Oh like- wow. So I've been working on something for a while. And um it's it's a it's a book. It's a nonfiction book. Ooh. And it's called Parachute Women. And it's about the, some of the women who were involved with the band, the Rolling Stones during the late sixties and the early seventies, like Anita Pallenberg, Marianne Faithful, Marsha Hunt, Bianca Jagger, and um, sort of their influence on late sixties, early seventies rock culture. Ooh. So that's what mm. I've been working on. And that book is such a bigger scope than my Maryland book. I 
so it was really quite a quite a challenge to work on. Yeah. But that's what's next. <laughs> Do you have a day for like when you think it'll probably hit bookshelves? Um, probably early next year. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> oh, wonderful. Well, you know, definitely, Elizabeth, you are welcome back with Parachute Women. Um, Thank you. And even, you know, reach out to us after you see this new Netflix documentary. And Oh, I will. I'm like, super curious. Yeah, about we it. might watch it soon. Yeah, we might have to invite you back on. Oh, I love to give us a like, (laughs) give us your thoughts, like, since you're so close, you know, Yeah, maybe I'm really, I'm really curious about it now. Yeah, maybe you can see, like, the bombshell musical on the Smash TV series. We'll have to, like, talk about Marilyn and the media. Um, Yeah, continue the conversation, because it's a whole different one, and one that's really, you know, expansive, I think. Yeah, yeah. And I think Mm -hmm. we can't let you go without asking, what movie of Maryland's do you turn mm-hmm. to a lot? I have two movies that I turn to a lot. One of them, it's probably the most is Some Like It Hot because I I just think that she's so funny in that film. I think that Jack Lemon is so funny in that film. And it's, it's always a movie that I go to when I'm kind of feeling down um, because it's just kind of, there, there's something about like the liveliness of the comedy that just pulls me out of whatever state that cloudy state that I'm in. And one of my other favorites is Bus Stop. There's something mm-hmm. so magical about that film. And it also, it, it was a film that she was so proud of. And I, I kind of love that, like, sort of, I'm so, I'm so East Coast that I'm sort I find the West is this mythical place that may or may not even exist you know so it's interesting for me to watch her in that setting and the cowboys and stuff and also um you know she and Milton Green worked so hard on creating that character so bus stop is a big one for me too oh good okay well we all need to you know take Elizabeth's suggestions I need (laughs) to see bus stop okay Mm -hmm. um well thank you Elizabeth um this is just, oh my gosh, thank you. It was a pleasure. Wonderful. No, learned, we learned so much and, you know, we can't well, wait. So did I. <laughs> well, well, this is why it's so wonderful to like bring us all together and I can't wait for your new book. Um, thank yeah, you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love the way that your mind goes into these counter or not counter, but like what is also happening. Thank you. I appreciate that. That's always kind of what I'm thinking about. I'm sort of not thinking about the main thing. I'm off in the subtlety of something else, you know, so it's nice. It's great to hear that you appreciate that. Yeah. I like the under the surface, Mm -hmm. what's going on behind the scenes. Yeah. So thank you. And Mary, thanks for being a co-host. Thanks, Mary. Yeah. And thank you listeners. And, you know, make sure that you get your hands on Maryland and Manhattan, which people are already um, saying they're getting your book, um, even knowing that you're coming on. So. Oh my gosh. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Bye everyone. Bye. Thank. We hope you enjoyed this Ivory Tower Boiler Room or True Crime in Academia episode. You can watch our video versions of our episodes on patreon.com slash Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Join at the price of an iced coffee or 
Join as an Ivory Tower member and get some of our exclusive merchandise. I could not be here without an amazing team. So I'm Andrew Rimby, the executive director, and I am joined with Mary DePippi, our chief contributor, who hosts True Crime in Academia. It comes out on Tuesdays. Jaren Usta is our marketing director, and our two interns are Nicole Arguello and Kimberly Dallas. And I'm actually here with Mary. So Mary, where can they follow us on social media? You can find us on TikTok and Instagram at Ivory Tower Boiler Room. On Twitter, we are at Ivory Boiler Room. And then just search the Ivory Tower Boiler Room on Facebook and you can like our page there. Wonderful. And we, Mary and I and the whole team, hope you all are healthy and happy. And we can't wait to join you and you know, have you all join us in the Ivory Tower Boiler Room next week. Bye, everyone. Bye. We're having a heat wave. A truck.